Good morning. Uh, we, we've got a new uh, series of study we're going to be going through between now leading up to Easter. And what we're looking at is the road of redemption that Peter has gone through uh, in his own experience of his, I mean, his experience of how he saw the Easter story, uh, the failure that he experiences and what he goes through. Peter is so interesting because he is, uh, we could give him a nickname, he'd be Peter the Impulsive. He is jumping in water, he's losing his temper, uh, he cuts people's ears off. I, I've, I've lost control, I haven't done that. I don't know how many of you have cut a human being's ear off in a moment of rage, uh, but I know one guy, and uh, he's, he's a very impulsive individual, and he's very sure of himself on the night before Jesus is going to uh, go on to trial, and he's very wrong about himself. And there's this amazing thing where God can take Peter the impulsive, and he makes him a rock. His name was Simon, and he's renamed Petros, which means rock or stone. He's going to be made a solid person uh, who is going to be leading and caring for people. But he's got a long road before he gets there. The apostles were very much intended to give us a picture into human behavior of how we behave and how we succeed and fail in, in assisting Jesus in what he's doing. In Peter's story, we see a portrait and a sense of us all in both his sense of self-disappointment and his own pain and the grace that he experiences. I find, and maybe you find too, that I am most motivated to do something the night before. Like the amount of times that I have planned to go to the gym in the morning to the point that I packed my bag, I took my soaps out of the shower. I was, I was going to go. I knew I was going to go. I'm packing the bag like, this is my fight song, going to take back my life song. I'm confident I'm going to go. I know I'm going to go. And then the alarm goes off, and I turn it off, and I th start to think, you know, I think I once read that a good night's sleep is, is like equal to going to the gym. <laughs> Sleep is very important, and, and you know, this is all about health. This is about bulking up. I'm not trying to look. I just want to be oh, cardiovascular health. This is cardiovascular in this moment. I'm going to get some more rest and uh, be ready for this later, and I end up unpacking my gym bag in my own bathroom <laughs> to get ready for the day. I, I went to sleep the, the, on those nights where my willpower is a Bengal tiger, and when I wake up, it is a tabby kitten at best. I have given up, and I am not going to do it. Maybe you've had times where you were determined you weren't going to lose your temper, or I'll never shout at my kids, or I'm not going to let them get my goat anymore. But when the pressure's on, that's just gone. I, I, I taught, what was it, three or four weeks ago on anger. How many of you have lost your temper since then? Notice my hand's up, too. Uh, there's just this gap between what we intend to do and what comes out when the pressure is on. Peter's intentions are very clear. We read this, uh, we're gonna, this is the context what we're reading today, but we're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. It says, Then Jesus told them this very night, You will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night uh, before the rooster crows, 
you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even I have, I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is Peter's greatest confidence, and there is a self-righteous tone if you listen to it there. Even if they all fall away, I will be the best one. If I was one of the, if I was one of the other 11, I think I would have been a little upset at that statement. Like, even if Sam fails, I'm still in. He's very confident of himself. He's very sure of what he's going to do. And I don't think there's a part of him that is in disbelief. He is the apostle who corrects Jesus the most. Uh, he's always telling him, don't say that. You're wrong. So for him to say, no, no, you're wrong. I don't know what this rooster talk is about, but I am not going to fall away. It is, it is in his behavior. But he goes from being certain that he will be the best and he will not fail to becoming he is the second worst, and the only person that beat him in a worst performance that night is Judas Iscariot. If you're in a competition of faithfulness to Jesus, and you only lose to Judas, you did really badly. <laughs> and we're going to read the story of his denial and, and what he goes through, uh, because who Peter is, he is you and he's me. He is, he is the way we are, that we can be so certain of what we're going to do and the fidelity we have to God and that we are not going to be shaken. We're not going to be pushed away. And within hours of that level of confidence, I will be the best one here. You can backtrack so quickly and he can backtrack so quickly. So we're going to read that story. We're going to jump ahead a few paragraphs. We're going to be starting in... Turn the page. Um, verse uh, 69, we're going to be starting there. He says, now Peter, uh, this is after, uh, for, for a little bit more context, Jesus has been taken, he's being dragged away, and Peter is in hot pursuit following behind him. Peter was sitting in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all and said, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out into the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there uh, went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This scene has this really interesting setup. Before this happens, Jesus has been blindfolded. And this is the portion where the guards are striking him. And they're demanding. I didn't think this was going to make me emotional. Come on, Sam. All right, let's go. They're demanding. They say, prophesy who hit you. And it's this incredible moment to where they're demanding, prophesy, who hit you? And he's silent. But it's the setup to his prophecy coming true about who really struck him and who struck him in his heart. They're demanding something, but they're so unsensing to see its fulfillment. And because they had no fellowship with Jesus beforehand, they don't see it. Peter very much intent, or excuse me, Matthew, who's writing this gospel, he really intends for us to see a comparison between Jesus' experience of these trials and his persecution and Peter's at the same time. There's a block of three. They keep coming up in threes. And in fact, in a few weeks, 
when we read about Peter's restoration, we're also going to see a three coming up again. Three times in the garden, Jesus prays that the burden would be lifted from him. That in, his, in the humanity and in the pain that he's experiencing, he says, I don't want to do this. Father, will you lift it from me? And three times he submits that he is going to do it. There's other things that are interesting here. Peter is standing trial before a couple of girls. <laughs> and Jesus is before a mighty Sanhedrin. And I don't mean to, to disparage girls in today's sense. I mean to, to understand how the status they held back then. There is an enormous gap of who's making these accusations. And Jesus stands faithful before people of the highest power. And Peter's different. So we should look at who's accusing, and particularly the first one. It says it's a servant girl. And in other gospels, they, we can triangulate the meanings of things, that it's basically a slave of the high priest. That this is a person of incredibly low standing. The lowest that it could be, it is a slave it's a female, which in that time made them of low standing, and it's a slave. Uh, the slave ranking, uh, or the slave in this house that would be in this high-ranking official, you had to be high-level birthright. You had to be a very uh, gentrified person to be high priest. And so for her to belong to this household and to be there, to be around the high priest, she would have seen Jesus several times up close, which means she would have seen Peter several times up close. And what's interesting is she actually makes no uh, threat to him. Her accusation is simply, you, you were with him, weren't you? She doesn't say, hey, everybody, let's round this guy up too. He looks like he could be beaten. Um, she's not saying anything is going to happen that's terrible to him. She simply is making a statement, weren't you also with him? We can miss it, but Peter's statement when he says, uh, surely I do not know what you're saying, the phraseology that's there, it was actually a specific set of wording they would use in court, in Hebrew court, to, to deny something, to say that you had nothing to do with it. And so Peter, even though he's just being asked a simple question, he immediately begins to believe he's on trial. And he's repeating legal terms, and he's firing back, and he's denying uh, what's being said to him. What's amazing about the Greek word uh, deny is that it's the same as disown. They use it in both sentences. It has this idea of, of um, imagine someone abandoned a car in your driveway. It's not yours, and you're trying to convince the junker to take it away. This might be a time that you would disown the car. I'm telling you, I have no idea whose car this is. I don't care. Do with it whatever you want. That's what the word means. I am fully disowning. I don't know who this person is. Do as you please. And what's interesting also is that Peter's fear seems actually very unwarranted. We almost think of, I mean, what was he supposed to do? They were going to kill him with Jesus. They actually didn't. When they arrested everybody in the garden, despite the fact that Peter even attacked somebody, they didn't take any of them. They were not guilty for the teacher's crimes. They weren't going to make this mass persecution and make the martyrdom even worse. All they wanted was Jesus. There was never any intent shown at any point that they were going to go after the disciples. In fact, in the moment that they had the key people, his, his closest cohort of friends, they passed up on all of them. It's amazing the story he's telling himself that when things look bad, and when, when the appearance of something is bad, doubt just begins to sink in at levels you never thought it would. 
because fear is a powerful thing. The story that we tell ourselves about where we are in the moment when we're afraid is a very powerful and driving thing. It's going to make a huge difference to how we are behaving and doing things. You might have a very different way that you account for what you do spiritually when you speak to other believers. Whether it's the music you listen to in the car, what you do first the moment you wake up, uh, going to church on Sunday. We speak a certain way to believers, but to non-believers we find that we talk about it a little differently or not at all. I think Peter is at a very similar place. He has been bold and he's been, it's been easy to do, but he's with the most inner uh, He's with the most inner circle. He's surrounded with people that are, are thinking like him, and it's been easier. It is very easy to shine bright when you are not afraid that you're going to be snuffed out. Christ told his disciples that you don't light a lamp and place it under a bowl. You don't hide its light. So in the same way, people that are chosen by God are meant to shine, even in hostile moments, even when it is difficult. Do you discuss your life of faith more freely with other believers, but with the outside people it becomes a personal matter, a part of your private life that isn't discussed? Peter's second denial, things continue to ramp up for him. He just has to keep making it worse. Uh, It says, when he went out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Same benign statement, same seemingly uh, unthreatening accusation. But as they mount up, we see Peter continues to get worse. He doesn't continue to deny in the same way. He's not just moving away physically. He says he left and he went out to the gateway. He draws back from Jesus. But he begins to draw back from Jesus even in his practices and what he does. It says he makes an oath and says, I don't know this man. This is in a direct violation of one of Jesus' core teachings that was very unique to him. He says, don't swear any oaths in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not by anything that you can think of, whether it's natural or religious, because such behaviors is the, is the evidence of just the unfaithfulness and dishonesty of man. And such dishonesty finds its roots, in fact, in Satan. So he says to them, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. He wants his followers to be people of their bond, where honesty is so integral to who they are, and it becomes such a common way they express themselves and who they are, and it would would signify them that they would be beyond oath-taking, that it would be a thing that we don't need the Jesus people to give us an oath. If they said they're going to do it, they're going to do it. In this moment, Peter is all of humanity because he's unfaithful, he's dishonest, and so he's caught in oath-making. He's also all of humanity because he had uh, every intention of obedience, but obedience is so much easier when you're not under pressure. It is very easy to do things right when things are going well. He probably had a great track record not making oaths, and this immediate backslide happens when he's under pressure. It is impossible to backtrack, or it's impossible to uh, stay faithful to what what we say we're going to do. It's impossible to be obedient when we lose faith, because seeing Christ as sovereign and over all things, king of all things, safe over that room, that even though this is an extremely corrupt court, 
They have done research back into this. It's not even just that they killed an innocent man. They actually broke their own laws just to get there, both theirs and the Roman law. This was uh, mob mentality, an illegal operation. But Christ is king even over that place, even over those things. The heart of the image of the Lord is my shepherd, and he makes a... He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies is that God is so in command that even though you can see the threat, even though you can see that things look bad, you can see that your Savior is now bleeding and bruised, that he's surrounded by uh, danger, that you know that even in that moment, even in this place, when I'm under pressure, when it is frightening, when it is scary, God is still God and he is still king and he is still sovereign. Christ is the king of all things, therefore I have peace to be obedient, even right now. For Peter, he's looking across at the Sanhedrin, 70 elders that ruled Judea. He's looking at the high priest, who was the highest authority since the king they had was really just a puppet king. But just a few yards away from them is the king of kings. And losing sight of that, having a moment where I doubt who is that that's on trial, leads to this Terrible progression of falling back further and further and further. Peter continues to ramp up his denials. It says that a little while, those standing uh, there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Peter's experiencing a little bit of the feeling of country bunking around the big city people. <laughs> he had a Galilean accent. This was a rural area where fishermen and, and people just sort of survived. And so he's got a bit of a southern draw. And it's giving him away to the northern Yankees, and they are picking on him for it. <laughs> they, thought of, they thought of Galileans as stupid. They thought of them as revolutionaries. And so this sense of the world's against me, They've taken the person who protected me. I'm surrounded. It's beginning to grow with him as he feels the, even the prejudice of this, of what are you doing here in Jerusalem, you little Galilean? They ramp up in severity, though. His, it gets worse and worse with each thing. As his sin grows, we see that what's pushing behind it, the roots going underneath it is his fear. He's getting more afraid and more afraid, and the sin begins to grow with it. There are a lot of people that, uh, if you research this, you can find in commentaries, they think cursing and swearing means that he started to use profanity. He was swearing him a curse. He started using four-lettered words. That's actually not what this means at all. Swearing and cursing is something very different. I found a great passage in the Old Testament that highlights what this is. You see, it's a story when King Saul is pursuing his enemies, and Jonathan, his son, has led this great charge, and they're pressing them, and now they're fleeing into the forest, and all of Israel's pursuing them, and they've been in caves, they've been in hiding for so long, they're finally out, and this army is starving. And Saul does something incredibly brash in 1 Samuel 14. He says, Cursed is anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. This is very much drawn up as a very stupid curse. That was the curse. Cursed be anyone who eats anything until I have uh, avenged myself and my enemies. And so Israel is starving. They're emaciated. They're falling in the woods. They're trying to keep up. His son Jonathan finds where some honey has fallen out, a honeycomb, and he picks it up. He eats it. He's full of energy. We all do better when we've got a full stomach. If you're being a little bit disobedient to God, eat a meal and see what happens. He, he leads this incredible victory. 
And when, it's, when they inquire of God, what should we do next? And God is silent. They say, let's draw, let's, let's figure out what this is. So they begin to draw this sort of fortune-telling way of figuring out who it is. It comes to Saul's tribe, comes to his household, comes to he and Jonathan, and then to Jonathan. And Jonathan basically says, Dad, that was stupid, and I ate. And you could see when my eyes brightened, I led everyone to victory. So there was the curse. Curse be anyone, and here's the swearing. Happens in a little, a, few, a little bit later in verse 44. It says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. So the men have to intervene, and they say, you cannot kill Jonathan, and they save him from this terrible oath and this, this curse and this swearing. So we don't have Peter's words, but we get the idea this is the worst thing that Peter has ever said. He is now calling down curses and swearing uh, with Jesus. It would have maybe sounded like something, Peter would have said something maybe to this effect. Curse be me and my household to the seventh generation if I ever knew that man. And may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I'm lying to you today. This is an extreme thing to call down curses because the curse would have been on him, would have been on everything he's ever been, and it would have been based on a lie and would have been sworn on the name of God saying, would God deal with me? Would he bring judgment on me if I'm lying? But you know, just like the household of Saul, Peter is also graciously delivered from his own curse and sworn oath. I think it's one of the most amazing things is that God has grace for willing rebellion not just the giving into temptation, I didn't want to do it and I fell into it again, but willful, premeditated rebellion, God can still work in that place. And then the rooster crows, and in that moment, there's this sudden wake up of what he's done. There's an interesting thing. I found the Mishnah, which is this collection of really rabbinic teachings, banned roosters from being anywhere near the temple for sanitary reasons. It was something against worship, so they could not be nearby, which means that Peter's guilt is being heralded by an unclean bird. And this guilt strikes like lightning. In fact, the Gospel of Luke says that in that moment, Jesus looked up, and he would have been hundreds of feet away, and he looks right into Peter's eyes when it happened. And it is, to me, unbelievable that, and also Luke says that this took place over multiple hours. We don't get that sense when we read Matthew, but there was hours between this. It is remarkable to me that Peter didn't realize what was happening as it was happening. That it isn't until the rooster crows that he figures it out and knows what just happened to him. But so it is with all of us who deny Christ, who live one way, when we know the truth. We're not unlike Peter. We might not find ourselves in some sort of pseudo court having to say whether or not we know Jesus. But in our actions and our daily lives, we can live like he is real or we can live like he is unreal. Like Jesus is king or he is not king. Like he is in charge of caring for me and my household and my daily concerns or that that's really my job and I'll just raise my hands in, in church and I'll read my Bible and that is where God is real. Peter was completely ignorant until the rooster crows. But we see he's getting worse, don't we? Level one denial, level two, level three, until he is calling down a curse on himself, forsaking God and everything that he could possibly say. And though the rooster's crow, I'm sure, was a horrible thing, I imagine for the rest of his life, when he heard a rooster's crow, it probably made him feel a little sick to his stomach. 
In a sense, this rooster was an incredible mercy because at this moment as he leaves in bitterness, even though it shook him violently, it did shake him free of his path of rebellion and started a long path to redemption. We can believe by policy that Jesus is our hope, but in practice, do we really believe that he's coming for us and what we need? We can believe in policy that faith in Jesus is an escape from unimaginable pain into unimaginable joy. But when we have the opportunity to share our faith with other people we know are going towards destruction, do we deny Christ in that moment and say that we don't believe through our actions and what we're doing? In lean times and good, honestly, Christ's people should do everything different than everybody else. They should stand out. That a city on a hill can't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. That how we are with wealth and how we are in lean times, how we are when things are going well in fear should be dramatically different. We have these painful reminders and statistics, things like the divorce rate is the same in the church than it is out of the church. That child abuse is the same in the church that it is out of the church. That we can have a way of believing in policy one thing and forsaking Christ for the rest of our lives. The difference should be incredibly evident. And we deny Christ when we live like the Christian atheist. That though I believe in Jesus, everything that everyone else worries about, I worry about just like them. I panic over the same news stories as if I didn't know who was the king of the universe. And I, I get in the same fights. And I do the same things that everybody else does. I lose my temper in the exact same way. Luke 12, 6 and 7, Jesus says that he knows the numbers of hair on our heads. And he knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Peter, when Peter to himself, he thought, I know who Simon Peter is. He is a guy that when things get really bad, he will stay with Jesus. And Jesus had to say, no, I know who Simon Peter is. And when things get really bad, you're going to run away. You'll deny me three times. Even though Jesus knew that Peter was unfaithful, it never stopped him from calling him in the calling scene. Peter's fishing and he's called off the boat. He's called to come be a fisher of men. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He doesn't buy some car not knowing how it's going to run. He knows exactly who he's calling. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself and began praying for him and dispensing grace before Peter even needed it. Luke 22, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Peter's other name, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. God's greater knowledge is a great comfort to us because he's seen your unfaithfulness and he's seen a lifestyle of denial and he's chosen you anyway. And Christ prays from your return before you even leave. And he prays that you will not fail. And his grace goes before us. He has a power to place new faithfulness in you. The same power that made Peter the impulsive, Peter the rock, is the same power that leads us today. Peter might deny Christ at Christ's own trial, 
but he does preach the kingdom a little bit long, a little bit further out on the day of Pentecost to a sea of unbelievers, and he is unafraid to say who he knows. Grace does an incredible work, and where the repentant heart gives it space. Christ said, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before the Father in heaven. On paper, Peter was done. I have never disowned Christ quite that bad. That cursed be me in my household, or whatever his curse was, to say, this is the penalty I'll pay God. You enforce it if I'm lying right now. On paper, he was done for, but in heaven, he wasn't gone yet. He didn't pay a penalty for his unfaithfulness, not the one that he asked for. He wasn't disowned, and his cursings and all of his oaths and promises were broken off of him. The mercy of God has withheld from us the consequences that we paid for, bought for, and not just the ones before we got saved, but the stuff that we did after we started following Jesus. We must dive deep into this mercy if we want to be remade. God knows the double standard within you. He knows everything about you. But we need to be able to let God heal. To let God heal, we need to know it too. Peter needed to understand how unfaithful he actually was before Jesus could bring him back and heal him. And repentance is our part in this new process of redemption. Peter began his when the rooster crows and he goes away in tears. Our process of redemption after everything we've done, it starts when we change our posture, when we repent and we say, Lord, help me do things different. There's more mistakes Peter made. They're recorded in the book of Acts. He doesn't really stop. But God kept working with him. And he still is an incredible father to this faith who led the church, who cared for people, who raised up pastors and fulfilled his calling that Jesus told him to come back and strengthen his brothers and sisters. What I want to pray is that we thoroughly acknowledge who Christ is in our life. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that it would be as real as it is ever, that we would not forget just who is on the throne, who is our king, who's uh, cared for us, the hope that we give and account for, that we would be able to do that with everything we do, to not live in denial one time to the next, but to be completely faithful. So let's dive into that grace and let's change our posture and let's repent and be with the Lord this morning. God, today I ask that you would Help us understand what you've always known about us. That even though there are times that we're just like Peter and we can just surprise ourselves with how bad it really got, it didn't surprise you. And in your most tender moments with us, you were aware of that failing. You were aware of what we were going to do. You've been so good. Lord, I pray that we could dive into that grace, that you would forgive us for the way that we present ourselves even to to co-workers, to friends that we know, that we live for a moment as if you're not real. Lord, I pray that every moment we would live knowing that no matter how things look, no matter how threatened we might feel or how much it seems that you've been pushed out of society and you're across the way and you're being persecuted, Lord, let us not forget that that's the King of Kings and that's our Lord and that's our Savior. 
that we can have confidence in the kingdom of heaven and live every day knowing you are true, that you are real, that you are with us. And God, I pray that the people around us would feel it. Move in our hearts today and change us, Lord, that we'd be more faithful to you. In your name we pray, amen.